This is episode 5 of CityCast's Resilient Cities series, which was developed by Daria Demeritri, Henry Challen, Wendy Zhang, and myself as part of our Semester in Residence project in the fall and winter of 2020. In this episode, Daria Demeritri leads an interview with Danielle Kaliak, who is an environmental project manager at the City of Edmonton, about how the city built its climate change adaptation and resiliency strategy plan from the ground up and the challenges that her team ran into while pushing for new climate plans. She discusses some of the struggles of community engagement and how the interdisciplinary nature of climate change brings together a variety of different ideas and expertise. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to quickly mention that the application deadline for the City Lab Semester in Residence has been extended from May 17th to June 15th. If you want to get practical project experience in working with community partners and the City of Hamilton, this is your chance. So, if you're a McMaster or Redeemer student and were not able to apply by the last deadline, fear not, as you still have time to get those applications in. You can find the applications on community.mcmaster.ca or on citylabhamilton.com. The links to both these websites will be listed in the description. Also, to keep up with what we're doing, check us out on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CityLabSIR. And now we'll let Danielle introduce herself and get right into the interview. So yeah, so I'm an environmental planner with the city of Edmonton, and I have a, I guess my academic background is environmental science and environmental design masters focusing on environmental planning. Um, so yes, I work a lot now in the in the field of climate change, I guess, that kind of intersection of climate, environment, and urban development. So it's a pretty interesting space to, to work in, and I'm happy to, to chat today. So the first question we have for you today is, what does your climate change and adaptation resiliency strategy plan look like? And if you could maybe touch upon like the driving factors that inspired the plan. But maybe just to give a general overview of the plan first. So our adaptation plan is a community plan. So it's looking at not just city of Edmonton corporately owned assets and services, but also adaptation in the broader community in our city. Um, it's scoped in space by our city boundary, which of course has limits for climate adaptation because obviously, you know, things that happen elsewhere impact us, but just for the sake of doing a manageable project, <laughs> we scoped it in space by our boundaries and then we scoped it out in time looking out to the 2050s. So really our climate change um, impacts we're looking out, I'd say pretty short term, relatively speaking, 2050s isn't actually that long, long away. Mm -hmm. um, and it's centered around five pathways towards resilience and four of those relate to climate change themes that we identified so changing temperatures changing precipitation changing weather extremes and our changing ecosystems with a fifth underlying pathway that's really all around making science and evidence-based decisions um, so that's kind of like our plan in a, in a nutshell it's a four-year action plan right now to be updated every four years and that's really just to align with our um, council budgeting processes um, to be quite honest there we also looked at it, um, impacts across 17 different asset and service areas. So things like infrastructure, so, you know, our buildings, transportation systems, you know, water, wastewater, stormwater. We also looked at socioeconomic things. So our economy in general, we looked at emergency management, community and culture, and then natural environment. So it was quite a, quite a broad scope there. Mm -hmm. um, so 
Yeah, so that's kind of it in general. And you mentioned wanting to kind of understand a bit about what inspired the plan, I guess, or why it began. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. Some, like the driving okay. factors. Sure, sure. So there's, there's a few, um, but a few kind of things I think that drove the plan and some of it started before my time with the city. Um, So I'll try to speak to it as best I can, but I believe it started kind of back in 2011. And that was when our city council approved um, this document called the way we green. And that was our environmental strategic plan at that time. Um, It's now no longer um, relevant, I guess, but, but it was at the time what kind of drove all the environmental work in, in our city. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the development of, the, of that plan, they looked at environmental actions that needed to happen across, you know, air, water, all of that. And one group was energy and climate change. And during the public engagement that went into developing that plan, it became evident that energy and climate were really where citizens were seeing a big gap in our city um, work. And so that's where they really wanted the focus um, to be. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that really helped drive council to prioritize energy and climate change. And so, uh, of course, the priority ended up being um, climate change mitigation, so energy transition strategy. That was kind of the first piece that they focused on. And then when I joined in 2015, we started working on the adaptation plan. So it really was um, kind of a mix of citizens saying, hey, you're not working on this and you should be. And I would say also our council is very um, committed to this work. Our council four years ago and our council now, um, those two councils, we've had some, our same mayor and he is a big champion of this work as well. We have two councillors that have also been huge champions. They set up kind of um, what, what we call a council initiative. So it's basically two council sponsors that are really helping to um, prioritize this work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I would say it was kind of a combination of citizens saying, please work on this. Council had political will and then um, it really just kind yeah. of fell out from there. Yeah, with our talk um, with Van- um, in Vancouver with Doug, I think he was saying like, you should like have like a champion and like council and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so based on that, I think what I was curious about is when I was taking a look at the action plan, it stated that there was a climate risk and vulnerability assessment that was taking place. So I was hoping if you could maybe talk more about what that was exactly. Sure, yes. So we did a vulnerability and risk assessment, or I'll just call it a VRA um, for now, I'll just make it a bit easier. And so that was really to help us, yeah, identify what our major risks and vulnerabilities to climate changes would be. Um, So really, um, before we even started that, we actually did a baseline climate hazard assessment to look at what Edmonton's current climate conditions, what they mean for our infrastructure and assets and services. And through and that was really done with stakeholders to get them to identify what the consequences of a climate event would be on their what they're managing or owning today. And through that, we found out that it was really challenging for people to translate a climate event or climate data into what that actual impact looks like. And so even before we went and did our VRA, we realized we had to do some kind of creative work to to help stakeholders understand, you know, if your if your temperature annual average temperature is changing by three degrees, what does that really mean on different assets and services? So um, we did a lot of things like developing different renderings of what that could look like. We tried to look at um, similar contextual events that maybe had happened elsewhere and what those impacts were. So we kind of did all of that background work, I guess, before we jumped into our VRA. And then our VRA was really 
So we did climate science modeling to figure out, okay, what, what are our expected impacts? And I, I said that we planned out to the 2050s, but we actually did modeling out to the 2080s as well. We did our climate science modeling based on two representative concentration pathways or RCPs. And those are really um, the greenhouse gas emissions trajectories that independent groups of modelers develop. And that's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what they use in their assessments. So we looked at two of those. So RCP 4.5 and 8.5. 4.5 represents a low greenhouse gas emission scenario. It assumes that you know collective global action has been taken and it, it roughly aligns with the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and then RCP 8.5 is that kind of business as usual. So yeah. we looked at both of those to kind of get different, I guess, climate scenarios in a way of what, what maybe would happen. But then through our conversations, we actually ended up doing our vulnerability risk assessment based on the climate modeling to RCP 8.5 because at that time it seemed like that was the likely trajectory we were on. So the vulnerability risk assessment, so, so sorry, so those, that climate science basically helped us inform the likelihood axis of the risk assessment. So, you know, are we likely, you know, is, is, um, is, an, is a climate event, you know, very likely to happen in the future, such as extreme heat? Yes, is a climate event not likely, such as maybe, you know, extended cold, maybe it's not as likely as it used to be. So that helped to inform the likelihood axis. And then the consequence axes we looked at with our stakeholders, it was very stakeholder driven, we had them quantify the impact of the climate event onto their asset or service area or what they manage. So we, um, we did a quantified approach, which was challenging just due to data limitations and, and all of that. But, you know, so looking at things like direct damages to a piece of infrastructure or a service as a result of a climate impact. We looked at a direct service loss or indirect service loss and kind of all of those things we ended up, I guess, compounding into an overall risk score for each asset and service area and each climate event. And then we aggregated that up to a city level. Um, so it was quite a complex exercise, I would say, and mm -hmm. not a lot of um, cities do it, do a quantified approach like we did. So that was a bit of a unique, unique aspect there. Mm -hmm. Does so that, I was getting a little bit technical. I apologize. Yeah, that's... no worries. Um, does that kind of relate to the science and evidence-based approach that you guys were stating in the in the plan? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. Um, because and especially because of our our baseline risk assessment that we did, we didn't really have a lot of confidence in the in the scoring aspect, just because it felt like, I mean. I guess every risk assessment is kind of, you know, risk is relative and it kind of does depend on the folks in the room and, and their experience and everything. But um, yeah, we felt that quantifying it at least helped to kind of standardize some of that assessment a, a little bit. So for sure. Um, but I do want to say too, though, like throughout our workshops, while we did a quantified risk assessment, we also had a lot of discussion. And so we also did capture a lot of the qualitative information because a lot of richness kind of comes out of that information as well and, and, and nuances that you don't always get throughout the kind of yeah so what is that qualitative information then yeah so that would be a lot of just like what stakeholders were, were saying so they might have you know assessed something as oh it's going to have this you know if this event happens we're going to damage as an example like 20 kilometers of our of our sewer pipe or something mm -hmm. but then they would talk about um maybe like the difference in what that means, you know, or like how they could maybe um, 
mitigate that kind of throughout that conversation that they couldn't capture just in like a numerical spreadsheet. So yeah. it's more of that type of information. Um, okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to like talk a little more about the approach that you guys took. So I know you said there was like a risk assessment done and then you had the quantitative data and the qualitative data. And then on the action plan, when I was taking a look at it, it was kind of divided into like three main parts. Like there was an investigating phase and then there was a direction setting phase and then a taking action phase. So I know we touched a little on the investigating phase, but how would like the direct, like what would be the first step in like a direction setting phase B and then for the taking action phase? Right, that's a, that's a good question. So I think, um, so how we kind of define the phases, I guess the, the direction setting phase did kind of include that um, risk and vulnerability assessment just because that helped us to understand the priority risks, I suppose. Um, on the different different phases. And then as far as moving kind of into the taking action, we, so with our stakeholders, we also did a, we did like a adaptation action planning exercise with them. Mm -hmm. So we basically, so what we did, and this might not be the, the right approach, I'm not sure, but what we did was we looked at kind of what other cities maybe have for adaptation actions, what were kind of in the literature, we kind of developed this long list of potential actions. And then we brought that to our stakeholders and we did a bit of a scoring exercise. And I can't remember all of our scoring categories off the top of my head right now, but we looked at, you know, sustainability. So like, would this, would this action, you know, cause an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, for example, or, or cause a decrease at those types of things. We looked at, you know, cost benefits, um, those types of things to figure out what the priority action should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so it was really a combination of a lot of things. It was, you know, what are our high risks? What actions would be most yeah. suitable? And we actually also looked at what was happening in the city, like, because it is a four-year action plan right now, we looked at what is happening in the city that are those big decisions um, that are happening outside of our team that we need to integrate into that would lock us into infrastructure or how we're building. So, you know, for example, our zoning bylaw is up for renewal right now. So we were like, oh, we should really work with that team to integrate climate resilience into that bylaw. So we did it. It was a bit of a, not all of our actions are based on the priority of climate risks, but some were based on what those decisions are that are happening that, now is the time to influence. Um, I just wanted to go back to the action plan real quick. So you mentioned that the plan touches on like various areas like transportations, mission development, um, but what were some of the priority areas that were like the most pressing issues that your plan wanted to address? And then what were some of the biggest gaps before like there not being a plan and now there is a plan? Like what was the gap that you guys really wanted to minimize? Sure, that's also a very good question. Um, I would say, so for us personally, or I guess corporately, whatever word is the right word to use there, um, I would say the biggest gaps that we we identified were um, more kind of internal focusing of how do we actually mainstream adaptation into all of our city business and planning decisions. Um, that nobody outside of our small team, and at the time we were a team of two, now we're a team of four, so we've grown doubled in size. But like at that time, no one outside of our team in the organization was really thinking about climate mm -hmm. um, resilience. And so that was kind of, so that's kind of been our focus too. Our focus has really been um, on those internal things to date. So, um, and we, it was kind of a good timing because so our city plan, which is our um, newly updated municipal development plan, transportation master plan, that was undergoing a big update. So we were like, okay, we need to get, make sure we get into that because 
that's going to set the direction of how we grow and build for the next, you know, 20 years or, or whatever. So it was really those, those types of things that we prioritized. So I know we were, no, that helps a lot. Thank you. Um, I know you were mentioning like you had like a champion council and all that stuff and like community residents were being contacted. So I was wondering, so you just mentioned right now too, that you guys were a team of two before you guys, are you guys a team of four right now? Okay. Yeah. What are some of the roles that is involved in that? Like sure. That's, yeah, that's a good, a great question too. So when we were developing it, it was my, myself and a, and a colleague, and I guess we kind of co-led the development. Um, so she's an engineer and a lawyer, and then I'm like environmental scientist and planner. So it was a really good, um, like interdisciplinary team, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things, challenges that we had developing it was the lack of a kind of communications and engagement mm -hmm. person. So we were able, luckily, to get a, a person on to fill that role kind of partway in this strategy development. And she's still on our team as well to kind of help with more of that communications, outward facing um, work. Mm -hmm. And then we also have now a another engineer. So she's working a lot with kind of the infrastructure folks, our asset managers, um, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I work mostly with um, the planning group and kind of that natural environment. And then um, our other colleague is um, kind of hands in kind of all of the different pies, I would say. So, um, yeah, so I'd say the main roles for us were like strategy and policy development, um, community communications and, um, sorry, I had a pop up there, communication yeah. engagement. Um, and then now implementing is kind of just working with, with all the different teams. So it, oh. It's, yeah, very, very yeah. roles. But I would say, too, like, one thing I think that was successful for us was having people with different backgrounds on the team because climate adaptation is such a huge thing and mm -hmm. tons of different disciplines are involved and it touches mm -hmm. on so many different things. So I think if a team can have kind of a variety of backgrounds, I think that that helped. Yeah, so uh, moving on, I know you mentioned, like, there were stakeholders and community residents. So I was wondering what type of stakeholders... Um, did you guys engage with, uh, and then how did you actually ha get their input um, to form the plan? Sure. Yeah. So the stakeholder, so we did kind of take, I would say quite a stakeholder led approach. And again, that kind of came back to that interdisciplinary aspect of climate adaptation. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, don't know what an impact on a bridge <laughs> like would have. Right. So um, so what, from the very beginning, we formed a stakeholder working group that actually was with us for the entirety of the project. And so those were stakeholders. So I mentioned that we looked at 17 different asset service categories. Mm -hmm. So our working group had a representative from each of those categories. One representative that would be kind of a internal city of Edmonton, one of our business partners, and then one representative from the broader community. So it was about 34 people um, that were kind of meeting throughout the entirety of the project. We'd get together kind of every few months. Um, it was more of an ad hoc, I guess, when there was something to talk to them about and get their input on to help them really um, develop the plan with us. And then we also had separate stakeholders for the purpose of doing the vulnerability and risk assessment and the action planning. And for that, we had kind of separate workshops for each of those different asset service areas. And we tried to bring together as many different internal and external stakeholders as possible for each of those. So they were a bit of a bigger group. Um, and those workshops, because they were quantified, they were very involved in gathering the data for us because lots of the data was, you know, 
asset information, for example. Mm -hmm. And they were actually like, so because it was quantified, we had a really fun exercise where they actually had to like score on a spreadsheet. <laughs> and so they actually did kind of that scoring themselves. So, mm -hmm. and that, so that really informed kind of the entire risk assessment essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was a, a broad range of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. yeah. That sounds like a great idea, like how you guys, like the approach that you guys took with it. Um, and I know you mentioned earlier, like there was like the champion, the council uh, and whatnot. How were the community residents, like, did they just kind of say like, oh, like you guys aren't doing enough at this and then start implementing projects or like how, what role did they play like specifically for the plan, the action plan? Right, yeah. So the community residents and the public engagement side, um, in all honesty, we really struggled with it. Um, we have an office, office of public engagement at the city and we talked to them several times throughout the, at the beginning of the project to try to determine what role citizens could have. Um, so in Edmonton, we have a, you know, we've got a policy on public engagement. We have this kind of public engagement spectrum that drives how we engage. And so really what we try to figure out is what can citizens actually influence uh, in a plan and so for this one, because it was kind of weird in our very first one, we were like, well, they can't really influence the climate science. That's, you know, model. And we were like, they can't necessarily influence the impact on an asset because that's kind of our, our asset owners who know, you know, their kilometers of pipe and that kind of stuff. So we ended up, I would say, not really doing true public engagement, but we more of like informing the public. So we ended up basically kind of sharing with the public all of the information that we were learning. So we shared with them the climate modeling. We shared some of the conversations we had on those VRA workshops. We'd actually hired a graphic recorder to capture the conversations and that qualitative data. So we shared all of that information. Um, so it was really more, we held, um, I guess, open houses and we went to pop-up events around the city just to share the information. And then at the same time, we were trying to just kind of collect from citizens, you know, what concerned them, what were they most worried about for climate change, and also what things in Edmonton um, did they want to make sure were, I guess, like um, preserved, for, mm -hmm. say. So in Edmonton, of course, our river valley, we kind of have a lot of pride in it. It's quite natural, you know, we don't have a lot of development. And so that was one thing that everybody was basically like, well, we want the river valley to stay as a river, river valley. So it was that kind of information we kind of gathered back. And so I wouldn't say that necessarily informed our, our plan. It was more of a, here's information to citizens, but we determined that through implementation of the actions, that's when we'll really do the, the community engagement. And so we were planning to have kind of community-based workshops to do adaptation action planning at a neighborhood scale. Um, those have been on hold because of COVID <laughs> but um, I think the true engagement will come out now so yeah so it's more just like educating the public almost yeah and keeping them informed on what we were doing and like yeah so yeah so they didn't really influence the action plan um, mm -hmm. but going forward it, in the implementation is when yeah yeah um, okay and then if we could get a little more into the Project. So I was just wondering, can you speak on some of um, the major projects that you and your team are working on? And like maybe just like some successes and challenges of the projects? 
Sure. Um, so a lot of the projects now, like I think I mentioned before, are kind of internal facing. Um, so they're not kind of those exciting, splashy projects, but to our team, they're really exciting because it's like, oh, we're getting we're getting integrated in. So some of the big ones. So our city plan, that's our MDP and TMP. Um, we were able to get some good policy directions and intentions in there around climate resilience. So for us, that's a huge win because now that we have those policies embedded in that statutory plan, it's like, okay, now we we have to do it. So that's a that's a huge win. And and I would say that was really just working with the team. You know, so much of it comes down to the individual people and the relationships that you have with the people. Um, so that was a big success. Um, another project that we're working on is also getting it involved, integrated into the zoning bylaw renewal project. And we actually, so we were lucky that um, our urban and regional planning a program at the U of A, they have a planning studio and their students wanted to look at climate resilience and zoning. So we actually got them to do um, a great research project for us. And I think that's really helped the zoning bylaw team to understand mm -hmm. it and to um, see what other cities are doing too, to kind of normalize it, I guess. So I'd say that was a big success was working with our academic partners um, to help with that one. Yeah. Um, we're trying to integrate into our design and construction standards. So those set how developers develop and build basically. And that one is where I think we're running into a lot more challenge. Um, just some hesitancy to change how things are done. Um, we're trying to figure out how, you know, it can be challenging to get people to, to change how they do things and to understand the value of it. Because, you know, lots of times you just see that upfront cost. And um, so we're trying to figure out how do we, we show the benefit because with adaptation actions, it can be really challenging to show an economic benefit because it's a lot of it is avoided cost. You know, it's not a return on investment like a solar panel, for example. So um, I'd say that's, that's been a, a big challenge for, for us. Um, but yeah, those are, I guess, some of the big ones right now, unfortunately. So we just started implementing the program last year, I guess. And you know, limited in resources, obviously. And, and I should mention too, so we're a team of four, but two of us um, were not dedicated full-time to this work either. We have other other work, so that's been limiting. Um, and then our community. So we were going to start community um, adaptation planning at a neighborhood scale, and that's been put on hold. So that's been a bit challenging, but we have this program in Edmonton, we have community leagues, they're called, and it's a pretty, um, they're pretty established I guess, leagues. Um, and through them, we have a Green Leagues program where basically their president of the community league will take a course on sustainability and get you know, certified as a, as a Green League person. And then they kind of spread out that information to their members. So we're working through them to, to help kind of build that community capacity because these, you know, they're leaders in the community. So we held a series of adaptation league workshops last year and we were going to hold more this year. And of course, you know, the pandemic kind of changed that. Um, so, but those, but that was an exciting one. I think that one, I think looked like it was starting to be successful just because there was a lot of interest in the community and people were, you know, quite, when you kind of show them the impact climate has on their lives, they're quite um, interested. So yeah, so I think those are some of the, the bigger, the bigger projects. And then we also have some research projects on the go, you know, of course with climate change, there's always new research and evolving research. And so, in 2018, we held um, the city's IPCC Climate Change Science Conference. It was hosted in Edmonton. And out of that, we had some leftover um, allocated funding dollars that we were able to create into a, a research grant program. 
So now we get, you know, researchers. So for example, for adaptation, we have three research projects on the go right now, <clears throat> excuse me. One is looking at regional downscale climate modeling for extreme weather events. One is looking at a wildfire risk assessment within the city of Edmonton boundaries. And one is looking at vulnerable populations um, and heat. So we're able to do some of that kind of neat research as well to help us inform programs down the road. So I'd say like those kind of buckets of mainstreaming community and then the getting more research are kind of those big projects that are, and they're exciting to, to ask. They might not sound super, you know, thrilling, but. Yeah, no, they sound pretty cool. Um, I was also just curious. So when you're talking about all these projects and like the Green League and all that, what were some of the best practices that you guys um, made sure that was like included involved, like when creating the plan and like implementing it, like some of the best practices involved for that? for all the projects or any? Ooh, that's a challenging question. I'm, I'm not sure if I do know best practices. I feel like I'm learning as I go for sure. And a lot of it does seem to be, you know, trial and error, but I guess, I, I guess one, I guess thing that I'm learning is just that the real, the need to really be able to kind of help people understand why they should care about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like it, um, I've learned that, you know, just presenting climate science data and graphs and stuff doesn't really get you anywhere. It really is trying to figure out how to connect that to, to people and to their lives and their livelihood and their activities. So I think that's been um, something that, that we're learning along the way. Um, I think too, another best practice, and this is kind of a general, maybe obvious one, but just, you know, having stakeholders and people involved from the beginning, if you can, to help them feel like they have a and I know we didn't, didn't do that with the public, but hopefully, you know, as we get more into the actual neighborhood interventions, that will happen. But just so that people feel more ownership about it, you know, and they and they agree with what, what's happening. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, that's a challenging one for me because I, yeah, I feel like a lot of it is so dependent too on, on what you're doing and who you're working with. And Yeah, I'm just curious on like when you say you want to make it like ownership and like more direct to the individual, like how you would, like do that because everyone's different right like like for some people like if they see like a visual of like climate change like consequences like they'll be impacted by it, but then there's other people that it's just like it's whatever almost totally yeah that's exactly one of the challenges and I know like so we've tried to like do things and share things in different formats even for that so like we still do like when we're talking to people we still do put up you know graphs and we show shifting bell curves and stuff but then we also show the rendering so like as an example I guess two of the renderings that we had done have really resonated with people so one is the river valley so in Edmonton we're expecting conditions will become more conducive to supporting grasslands and right now our, our river valley is a aspen parkland boreal transition zone so when we kind of visualize that shift people are like oh whoa we don't want that because it's we recreated and all that kind of stuff so that's had a big impact and then um I guess this is kind of maybe a, a cheesy, typical Canadian one, but we've shown, you know, like potential of like maybe in the winter you can't play outdoor pond hockey and that kind of stuff, right? Like we don't know, you might be able to, but it might be worse conditions and showing yeah. visuals like that has helped to connect with some people. So we're trying to like show like, yeah, talk to people in different ways because exactly what you said. Um, yeah, no, everyone resonates differently. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. 
In this episode, Danielle talked about the difficulty in convincing developers to stray from the status quo and make a shift towards using things like renewable energy. What do you think can be done to incentivize developers to incorporate climate resiliency into their plans? Share your thoughts with us by sending an email to citycast at citylabsir.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Join us next time for part two of this conversation.